Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. As I'm recording this, the United States is deep into negotiations with the Taliban over some sort of political arrangement that would enable the Taliban's entrance into Afghan politics while the U.S. drew down its troop levels. The specifics of these negotiations are opaque. Not much is known about what is on the table. What we do know is that there are precisely zero Afghan women at the table. And what we also know, thanks to research done in part by my guest today, Anna Tonelli, is that the exclusion of women from peace negotiations is a predictor of failure for those negotiations. When women are excluded from peace talks, those peace talks are less likely to result in any durable success, according to many studies. Anna Tonelli is the Inclusive Peace and Security Senior Policy Advisor with Oxfam International. And in this conversation, we discuss some of the research that links the success of peace talks to the inclusion of women. We discuss examples from around the world, but kick off with the situation in Afghanistan. I think you'll appreciate this conversation. It brings together a lot of trends under the rubric of women, peace, and security. As always, I love hearing from you guys. Send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg to let me know what is on your mind. If you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover, let me know. I love hearing from you. All right, now here is my conversation with Anna Tanelli of Oxfam International. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So at this point, what we what we know is that there are no women involved in, in those negotiations. Um, and in part, that's because right now it's uh, only between the Taliban uh, and the U.S. government, for the most part. In terms of the Afghan government, they do have a negotiation team, which is made up of 11 members, only three of whom are women. Uh, but they again, have not been included in these in these talks um, thus far. And, and so at this point, uh, no women have been engaged in, in these initial negotiations or really initial talks, we could say. And, and the fear is, of course, that the U.S. will sort of trade away these hard-won women's rights in Afghanistan in negotiations with the Taliban. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the, like the real sort of challenge here is that ever since the fall of the Taliban in 2001, the international community has really equated progress in Afghanistan with the empowerment of Afghan women. You know, there's there's been quite quite a bit of attention given to the to the plight of women in in the in the country, and as well as a lot of resources poured into, um, for example, 
women's access to education, um, to really ensuring that the sort of uh, lack of opportunities that existed under the Taliban regime and really the great oppression women faced were reversed. And so at this point, you know, you have some really hard fought uh, rights that are now enshrined in the 2000 constitution that was uh, signed in 2004, which guarantees women's equality before the law in Article 22, the right to education in Articles 43 and 44, as well as the right to work in Article 48. Um, And so you know, while these rights are enshrined, the challenge with these negotiations um, are that the Taliban are interested in reopening discussions on the constitution itself. Uh, so there's a real fear from from women uh, that without having explicit guarantees that women's rights are non-negotiable, that the constitution is, um, at least when it comes to to women's rights and really to to media freedom as well, that that those are are held and not not lost. Without that that guarantee, there's room for for yeah, for for the sort of uh, backward backward sliding into what was Afghanistan and in, in before two thousand one, and you know I think too there's there's this real fear from the narrative that's that's being you know delivered from the global north, uh, so beyond the U.S. but also Europe of just feeling sort of you know fed up with supporting. Um, you know, investment in this conflict and, and, and really wanting to, to see an end to, to the war. And so women are, are fearful that the, this, this desire to see peace will be overshadowed by what will be lost in order to gain that. It would be, be like, like an expeditious way of um, accelerating exactly. peace talks with the Taliban would be to like, just, you know, do away with these gains in, in women's rights. But, you know, again, you said earlier, that um, the sort of formal negotiating team from the Afghan government includes three women. They, they are, of course, being sidelined. You know, the entire Afghan government is being sidelined in these talks between the U.S. and the Taliban. But uh, in general, like, who are these these three women? They are government representatives. So this this government team of women, uh, or sorry, this government team has three women who are uh, members of of government, different departments, and um, you know they. They, of course, um, are, you know, I would say a little bit more on the progressive side of women in society, but, you know, they're they're government women. And so there's been, you know, quite a bit of pressure on the Afghanistan government by the U.S. uh, to kind of, you know, be pushing for this peace uh, to be, you know, calling the Taliban to the to the negotiation table. And so while there are women at the table, there's also a fear that these women might not be able to. Um, necessarily represent or put pressure during talks, um, you know, in favor of, of women's rights, given that they're not, you know, 50% of the negotiating party, they're only three. Um, and furthermore, because again, this, the immense pressure from uh, the U.S. on the government itself um, might mean that they have to sort of uh, side with with what 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 politically makes the most sense versus what, you know, they as individuals or as um, women might think is, is critical. And this, um, you know, this really speaks to why in these, in peace negotiations, of course, women's inclusion is, is critical. Having what we call a critical mass, which would be um, according to research is 30% women, which, you know, they're nearly there with a government negotiation, Um, but also having, you know, connections to other aspects of, um, peace building within society is really important. So, 
you know, these women aren't necessarily representative of broad civil society. They themselves are, are members of the elite. Um, they are members of the government. So ensuring that this peace process also is connected and reflective of the realities um, in Afghanistan it will also be critical. So in the case of Afghanistan, we have also this high advisory council. And this high advisory council is meant to be providing um you know, support to the government negotiation team uh, and, you know, giving giving guidance around sort of what what should be negotiated and, and really, you know, trying to share perspectives from, you know, a broader subset of, of society in Afghanistan. And on that body, there are 32 members and only two are women. And these mm-hmm. women happen to be from a more conservative, uh, you know, subset of, of Afghanistan's society, which, you know, does not represent the, you know, the majority of women in Afghanistan and certainly does not, um, you know, really provide an opportunity for those young women who have grown up now under a very, very different country with freedoms, with access to education, um, who have a different perception of the world. You know, the, the, the globe is much more, um, accessible now through social media and, um, you know, just a lot of the internet freedoms that exist, uh, and you know their voices are being, you know, they're not represented in this in this advisory body either. So, so it seems you know over recent years um, there has been greater attention to the value um, of including women in peace processes, and and you know the fact that you have the title that you have at Oxfam, I think, speaks directly to that. Um, that there is more attention, and there's been. Also, some uh, research and, and volum- like a lot of research done on what it means to include women in peace talks and how that impacts the outcome of peace talks. Can you talk a, a little bit about what we know so far, like what the research says about what happens when two peace negotiations, when women are included versus excluded? So, in terms of their inclusion, um, there's yes, you're correct. There's been quite a bit of, of research done. So, this was all birthed out of. The UN passed a resolution called 1325, which called for um, women's inclusion in peace and security decision-making, recognizing that not only um, their inclusion was critical in order to realize sustainable peace, but also that they had a right to be present in large part given the, um, you know, the the great impact conflict often has on women. Um, so through, you know, over the years, this resolution was passed back in, in 2000. So we're, we're getting close to the 20th anniversary. Um, so there's been quite a bit of evidence-based research done to really bolster the, you know, the advocacy around ensuring this, this resolution is realized because we still see, like in the case of Afghanistan, there's not, um, you know, there, there isn't consistent inclusion of women. Um, you know, out of the 23 rounds of peace talks in Afghanistan from 2005 to 2014, um, women were only included in five of those talks. Uh, so, you know, it was, it was not, not an impressive showing. Um, so in terms of what we're seeing research wise and why this matters, uh, you have, you know, statistics like the participation of civil society groups, including women's organizations, especially makes a peace agreement 64% less likely to fail. When women participate in peace processes, the resulting agreement is 35% more likely to last at least 13 years. And a lot of this is due to, um, you know, from sort of the more anecdotal um, research that's been done or more 
qualitative versus quantitative, you have um, examples of how women address, when they are brought to the table, women address issues beyond positions and power, which is often what- So like what's um, an example of, of, of something like that? Sure. So in Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition, um, they use their access to the talks to influence the 1998 Good Friday Agreement. Um and they brought a greater focus on social issues to the agenda. So this was looking at access to education, uh, refugee issues as well, um, inclusion of language on victims' rights and reconciliation uh, was another another aspect. There was another. And the idea that was- is that like the official negotiators, who are mostly men, wouldn't sort of pay sufficient attention to those issues, which ended up being like very important to the you know actual people affected by these negotiations. Right. I mean, for the most part, you know, you see, you see in, in conflict negotiations. So for example, in South Sudan, you know, the uh, president Zalvakir and um, former vice president Riyak Mashar and their, you know, their negotiating teams were arguing over positions and power. The most emphasis of the talks ended up being on who would be vice president and who would be president, which then resulted in a president and five vice presidents because they couldn't figure out, you know, who within that, um, Within the negotiations uh, would, would fit the bill, basically. Whereas you had women there um, asking for, you know, ensuring that the oil concessions that are going to be decided out of these um, uh, negotiations are going to the communities themselves, so that you know the, the profits are benefiting uh, the community to be able to invest uh, in schools, in in hospitals, in in infrastructure. So the the difference you often see is that you have, or in Liberia, you had again the the parties to the conflict fighting over once more positions and power, whereas women were there, um, you know, protesting outside the halls, literally chaining themselves around the entire building so that you know the the negotiating teams couldn't leave until they actually came to an agreement because they were you know, years in now of their children being out of school, of lack of access to food, of, you know, constantly being on the run due to, due to the conflict that, that was, that was ongoing. Well, Um, like Liberia seems to be an interesting example just for the fact that like the, there were no women as like the formal negotiators, but women heavily influenced the outcome through sort of civil society participation. Correct. Correct. And that, you know, there are different, having women, um, you know, the push women at the table is, is still vital in that, you know, they do impact the, the content of the agreement very often. And so, you know, you have for, you know, you had Northern Ireland, a Good Friday Agreement, you know, concessions for victims' rights, et cetera. You had in South Sudan, it was, co- co- there was a, um, a quota that was decided upon for women's inclusion of 35% in the transitional government mechanisms. You know, that wouldn't have been there if women weren't there fighting for it. In fact, there was quite, quite the, quite the, uh, you know, energetic negotiation around that um, when it was happening. But there are other modalities for inclusion. And Tanya Puffenholtz, um, who's a researcher at IPTI, has done a lot of looking into... What's IPTI? Oh, sorry. It's the Institute um, for... Oh, gosh, now... I'm I'm usually pretty good at these things. Azure, You you stumped me. You stumped me on this one. Oh, man. Um. So it's uh, it's at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies uh, in Geneva, uh, uh, but I'm now right. blanking on what. That's right. I'll, I'll, I'll add it at it. the end. Okay. Um, so she's done um, quite a bit of research looking at uh, you know 
more than 40 peace processes in 35 countries over the last three decades, um, really trying to untangle you know, how women were able to effectively influence a peace process. What, what were the types of approaches that, that they, that they took in order to engage? And so she came up with these seven modalities of inclusion. The first is of course, direct representation at the negotiating table. Um, and that was either women's inclusion within delegations or women having, you know, creating their own delegation. So in the case of Northern Ireland, for example, women went out and actually campaigned to create their own political party because it was only political parties who were invited to the table and those political parties kept excluding women. And so instead of, you know, fighting for access there, they just went off and made their own political party to then be able to engage in the negotiations. Um, you also have observer status and that is something that South Sudan, uh, their peace process, um, included. So you had women who weren't able to negotiate, um, you know, you know, weren't able to be vocal during negotiations in the room, but were observing everything that was happening. So did a lot of what I would, we would call guerrilla advocacy, where you're, you know, in the corridors of the hallway talking and trying to mediate between parties based off of what you've observed um, in the actual negotiations. Um, the other means of, of inclusion are consultations. And this is, it can be either official or unofficial. Um, but, you know, you have the case of um, right now, uh, Special Envoy uh, Martin Griffiths, who's leading the Yemen peace process, has been consulting with women, although there have not been impressive representation of women during the negotiations. We've only had actually one woman on the, the government delegation. Uh, you have had, you know, the Special Envoy's office attempting to at least meet with women's groups to um, solicit their their thoughts and what real the real cause of conflict is and possible, um, you know, solutions to, to those, uh, causes. You also have inclusive commissions. Um, so commissions that are, um, you know, meant to be deciding sort of like the transitional government once a peace agreement has been signed. So in South Sudan, you have a number of commissions that have been set up to actually implement the peace agreement. And these commissions, um, are sometimes even more important than actually the negotiations in that they really see through the implementation of what's been agreed to. And so women's inclusion there um, is also critical in terms of ensuring, for example, right now we're having an issue with the 35% quota being met in South Sudan. So you have commissions that are, are moving ahead without you know, having fulfilled that, that agreement. Um, so there's been quite a bit of advocacy from women on the ground to, to be pushing for, for, their, for their inclusion there. Um, you know, then, then the last three are high level problem solving workshops. So that can be, um, you know, a member state. So for example, um, you know, in the case of, let's see, um, even, even the U S sort of, or actually a better example is Germany in terms of 2000 in 2005, they invited, uh, the U S and the Taliban to sort of a, a problem solving workshop. Um, in as much as that, you know, just really start, trying to, to find in what way negotiations could, could become possible. Um, so that is also a key, key area for women's inclusion in that it really is setting the stage for what's going to be discussed and what, what the sticking points are and, and what, um, you know, parties aren't willing to concede on. And then the last two are public decision-making. So, um, part, women's participation in referendums are critical. In the case of South Sudan, you had, um, you know, more than 50% of, um, those who voted uh, for South Sudan's um, secession from Sudan uh, after the 
you know, a conflict that went on for more than 20 years were women. Uh, so there, it's another critical element for their inclusion. And then finally, mass action. And that's really the, the case for Liberia, where that's you saw it. women mobilizing um, for peace and, and doing, um, you know, various public actions, whether it was protesting along the route where the negotiating team would drive past every day to literally uh, linking arms around the doors to the negotiating room to protest any um, member of the delegation's departure um, prior to, to coming to, to a resolution around the conflict. Um, is there an example of a peace process that you and, and colleagues uh, of yours who focus on, on issues around inclusion you know, hold up as like a great example of inclusion done right? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I suppose there's maybe like no perfect example. I, I was stunned just in preparing for this interview to see, for example, that like the official delegations in the Columbia peace process, um, seem to include like a, a heavy number of, of women, like more than half, at least from the FARC side, uh, were, were women according to data I saw. Um, but you know, we're still, I suppose, early in, in that peace process, but I guess I'm wondering if there are in general, you know, examples of, of some of the elements you've described sort of done really sort of well, um, that could possibly be emulated in other situations. Yeah. I mean, I think Colombia is a really good example. Um, and it's particularly the peace agreement itself is a really good example of what can come out of negotiations that are more inclusive in that there's, I mean, the gender language is extraordinarily progressive. Uh, there's, you know, calling for human rights, you know, just, you know, more institutionalizing of human rights within um, the post-conflict transitional bodies. You have, um, you know, a real, you know, just more gender sensitive focus on uh, disarmament. Um, so I think that, yeah, the, 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 peace agreement itself I, it does stand as an example. I would also say, you know, Guatemala is not in the, in the greatest state presently, but after their civil war, there was, um, I mean, the peace process took quite a while. There were a number of iterations, but there were, there was a very, um, you know, effective structure that ensured a breadth of uh, that society was included. So you had um, you know, mechanisms where, whereby, you know, the tradespeople had their own commission, women's civil society had their own commission, um, businesses had their own commission and all of them met, you know, separately, but then also served as, as representatives, uh, to the negotiations. And so it, it provided more of like a feedback loop that was really critical to understanding kind of what, you know, what the positions were of, um, you know, broader society around, uh, the conflict and, and where, where they, you know, what kind of a future society they wanted to, to be a part of. Um, you know, South Sudan's most recent peace process. Um, uh, so that was just, the agreement was just signed, um, last year and there was representation in that you had, um, women on the negotiation team, you had women as an observer group, you actually had civil society as an observer group as well. And the, Again, the agreement that came out of it uh, was quite, you know, it was quite progressive com comparatively speaking to like a lot of their African um, neighbors. But, 
the challenge is, is also, you know, the implementation. So I think one of the things that we get stuck on, particularly here at the UN, is, um, you know, to ensure that the peace process itself is inclusive, but then we don't look to really follow up on the implementation. And that's really where the hard part comes, because it's, you know, it's redesigning government structures, it's redesigning economic relationships, it's you know, deciding where funding is going in terms of to schools, what kind of truth and reconciliation mechanisms are stood up to address uh, the grievances of, of conflict. And, you know, without, um, I think that's, you know, in the case of Guatemala, that was, that was not as successful as, as one would have hoped. And Colombia right now is facing a lot of challenges in this as well, in particular, because of all of the really progressive gender language um, and, you know, real calls for women's inclusion, there's been actually a backlash on women in Colombia um, with heightened levels of sexual and gender-based violence being reported um, because a lot of what what's called for in that, in that agreement is, is to really transform the country into a more, you know, progressive, fairer society. And so, you know, I think that, I mean, this is why it's so critical to have an inclusive peace agreement is because it, it can lay out a new architecture for a fair society and restructure power relations and, you know, make more inclusive socioeconomic policies or, um, you know, really replace some of the unjust structures and policies that were, that were, you know, the cause of conflict in, in the first place. But, you know, the agreement itself, once, once laid out, really does need that follow-up and that implementation um, in order for that to be realized. And so women's and greater societal society's inclusion in that process continues to be important. So, so we started off talking about Afghanistan, and maybe that's where I'd like to, to end. I mean, is it fair to say that to the extent that women are excluded from peace processes in Afghanistan, whether that's the U.S. talks with the Taliban or official government talks with, with various entities, including the Taliban, to the extent that women are excluded, is it fair to suggest, or does like the research suggest, that the resulting agreement won't hold and won't be successful? Yeah, I, I would say that, that that is the case. I mean, if you, if you think about it, if you don't have 50% of the population represented who have been, you know, Honestly, in, in, in the case of Afghanistan, you know, you could argue more more impacted by the conflict um, and would be more impacted by, you know, a, a reversal to Taliban rule. Um, you don't you don't have that that perspective. You don't have, um, you know, like one example that I can give is you have in, you know, when it comes to countering violent extremism, women's inclusion is, is just as important. And part of the reason is, you know, in societies, for instance, in Afghanistan, where it is more conservative and you don't have um, uh, the ability to, as a man, meet with women, for example, given the, the, the level of, of conservativeness, you know, women's, women's perspective, like what they see on a daily basis is, is, is totally absent. You're like looking with one eye. Um, you know, in Pakistan, women's groups, uh, after they were, there was finally... Um, women uh, in the police force uh, in Pakistan, they were able to meet with, with women one-on-one -on -one in these more conservative subsets, um, you know, in the Fatah region where, where the Taliban and ISIS are present. And they got, you know, just so much more information in terms of intelligence around like, you know, men moving about in large caravans or caches of weapons, things of that nature, because, um, you know, they, 
as women were a, a bit more attuned to sort of the coming and going of their, you know, brothers or fathers or just the community more broadly. And, you know, they weren't able to access that information until you had, um, you know, women able to, to communicate with them uh, to gather that information. Uh, so I think, you know, it is it is definitely um, sorry, I'm rambling here. <laughs> no, that's all right. um, you know, I do think that it, it, it I mean, you have the Taliban, the history of how they've ruled. And what I've seen, at least, from the type of rhetoric that they're delivering during the talks are not interested in a society that is supportive of women's freedom. And it's... Well, then how do you, like, bring them into a peace agreement? I mean, they are a belligerent. You know, the, you know, the, the, the goal of these peace agreements is to get the belligerents to, like, lay down their arms and participate in like normal politics. I mean, that's kind of like the, the Columbia model, right? Right. So how do you sort of, you know, when you have a group that's sort of animated by this fundamentalist ideology, like how do you um, sort of persuade them, uh, you know, to, to, to drop their arms and how do you not trade away, you know, women's rights in that situation? I mean, I think they're, they're, so there are, are ways in which, um, I mean, I think that the Afghans themselves need to be able to, to kind of lay, lay this out. I guess I just don't have as much faith in the United States deciding on behalf of, you know, the, the country of Afghanistan, how the Taliban will be, will be engaged in this, in this peace process or what concessions are or are not okay to be making. And I think that's something that, um, you know, Afghans beyond just women are, are concerned about in that it seems like this peace process is being driven um, by the United States and outsiders, and they are they are being neglected from from really contributing in any way. Uh, so, one, I think that yeah, I think that there are solutions and answers within within Afghan society. You have groups that have been living, or not groups, but you have communities that have been living in close quarters of the Taliban who aren't under Taliban rule for for years. Um, you have, you know, scenarios in which their women have been negotiating, whether via Taliban's wives to, you know, ensure like access to school, for example, for their children. Um, so you have women who are who are bridging divides in that way, using, um, you know, other women to try and see, you know, what possibilities exist for making small con concessions here and there. Um, so I think that there's there there are solutions that lay within. Afghan society, if if they were provided the opportunity to really be engaging in these in these talks, um, you know, I think too. There's, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a challenging discussion, but it's like if we can't ensure women's rights, then what kind of a peace will this be? You have research done by Valerie Hudson from she wrote a book called Sex and World Peace, and you know, there's been she did a statistical analysis of uh, the status of women in the world. And it shows that where women are more empowered, uh, particularly in public spheres of life, countries are less likely to go to war with their neighbors, um, you know, to be rife with conflict and crime within their society and violence. Um, you know, you, you also have research uh, that came out of this showing that gender inequality has been revealed as a predictor of armed conflict. Um, whether measuring, you know, conflict between states or within states. So there's also, you know, this 
this is still, you know, an ongoing research project, but there's, you know, there's more and more evidence coming out that inequality in a country does point to a greater likelihood of violence and conflict. Mm. And so, you know, if we are to be, if we are to give up women's rights in order to have a peace with the Taliban, what kind of peace will that look like? And if we look back to two, prior to 2001, you know, what kind of a, of a society, you know, really was that, um, not even just for women beyond women. Um, so I think, you know, that it's, it's not just that, um, yeah, it's just, I think it's a question of whether or not the country can truly be at a sustainable peace if, if women's rights are overlooked. And so it might take more time to be figuring out to what extent, um, negotiations, you know, have to go through in order to get to a, to an agreement that works with the Taliban. Um, but it's certainly not something that we can rush. Uh, well, Anna, thank you so much for your time. This was clarifying, helpful. Thank you. Great. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Anna. That was helpful, interesting, timely, and timeless, actually. There's a, a lot of uh, information in this episode that you know is really not news pegged to whatever the outcome is of uh, these negotiations with the Taliban. As I said at the outset, please do send me an email. Love hearing from you guys. Love to know what is on your mind, what makes you tick. I say this often, but I put this show together twice a week, every week for you who are listening right now. And so it really helps me uh, to know what is on your mind and to know what interests you. So reach out anytime. I'll see you later. Bye.